You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, uh, welcome back to the show, my Freedom Pact family. Today, we are joined by Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal is the creator of the most popular course in the history of Harvard University. When Tal was teaching positive psychology at Harvard, there were over 1,400 people that enrolled onto that course, which is just nuts. Tal is a renowned teacher and writer into positive psychology. His book, Happier, was a New York Times bestseller, and he's also a keynote speaker on topics such as the science of happiness, happiness studies, lasting change, and flourishing in a changing world. In today's episode, we discuss how to become happier, why gratitude is so powerful, the difference between depression and sadness, why we're so unhappy in the West despite living in the best time in human history, relationships, mindfulness, flow, self-acceptance, and also building self-esteem. So before we kick this off, just as a reminder, the video version of this interview is up on our YouTube channel, and there's also more additional notes on our newsletter, which goes out every single Monday morning, which I will link below. So guys, please enjoy this episode with the enlightened Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Welcome to the show. Such a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. Amazing. So let me just throw out a hypothetical question. If you were a psychotherapist, what would the first question be that you would ask? Um, how are you really? And um, it's not a question that I invented. Um, I had a teacher, Brian Little, who's uh, today a professor at Cambridge University. And uh, he, um, he would always ask us, his students, he would, he would say, so Tal, how are you really? And by adding that really on, you know, we, we knew that, that he meant it. And that, of course, opened us up and, uh, and uh, helped him get to know us better and also, of course, helped us grow. So the how are you really uh, would be the first question. But I have a second question. And the second question would be, are, are you exercising regularly? And, and, and here is why. You know, there's a lot of research on, um, on the importance of physical exercise. And um, basically what it shows is that regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, it works in the same way. It releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, feel-good chemicals in the brain. And um, 
so 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 exercising you know three times a week um, is 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 important and then when I looked at the research initially I said to myself wow so exercising is like taking an antidepressant because it has similar effects you know it's not a substitute but it, it has the same the same effects and um, so I thought, wow, it's like taking an antidepressant. But when I thought about it further, I realized that it's not the case. It's not that exercising is like taking an antidepressant. It's rather that not exercising is like taking a depressant. Why? Because we weren't made to be sedentary. We weren't made to sit around in, in meetings and, you know, exercise our you know, finger muscles all day. We were created to to be active, to run after uh, an antelope for lunch, or run away from a lion so that we don't become lunch. And uh, we were we were created to hunt and gather, and it has become a real need. And when we frustrate a need, whether it's a need for oxygen or a need for uh, vitamins or protein, we pay a price. And the price we pay is not just physiological, it's also psychological. In other words, if we don't exercise, we actually compromise on our God-given or genes-given level of well-being. So it's like taking a depressant. Now, I know how difficult it is to increase levels of well-being. If I were a therapist working one-on-one with people, I wouldn't want to fight nature. I would want to work with nature. And working with nature means beginning here, beginning, you know, after you exercise, now let's get to work. I don't want to have to work against nature, just trying to get it back up to to base level. So these are the two questions that I would ask. How are you really? And uh, are you exercising regularly? (laughs) It's interesting that um, you mentioned the exercise one. I did an interview with Kelly McGonigal uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually. She just wrote a good book called uh, The Joy of Movement. Exactly. And one of the things in which she said to me, because um, I said to her, you know, why does the body reward us so much for, you know, for moving? I said, I've, ne- I've ne- you know, I've never understood this. And she said to me, well, think about it in terms of how we reproduce, right? When you think about sex, it's a physical act. And she said, it, you know, our body rewards us so much because we need, we need to be, we need to move to live, essentially. So I, I you know, I, I found that completely fascinating. Yeah, we need to move to live, to live. We need to move to survive, um, whether it's by running away or running after. Uh, so everywhere, you know, the, it, it's only in the West that we've created such a distinction between mind and body. You know, there there really are two two sides of the of the same thing, two elements of the same entity, and um, by um, by using one the body were affecting the mind and the other way around as well what would you say would be the difference between depression and sadness the difference between depression and sadness is that is that depression is sadness without hope depression is sadness without hope you know sadness we all experience you know 10 times a day we all have our ups and downs it's natural uh, it's fine. It's it's, it's unavoidable. Um, when sadness becomes depression, and is when we lose hope, um, because when we lose hope, then we don't realize that this too shall pass, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it very often stays. It certainly overstays its welcome. 
You mentioned um, some studies which you wanted to talk about. I was reading on your website this study, and I actually had no idea of this, and, and it's crazy for me because I'm so involved in all this stuff. And and it said that in the last year, 45% of students had experienced depression within the last year. So, I mean, why are we so unhappy? Yeah, no, you know, uh, Richard Cadison, who's... Uh, um who's uh, at Harvard did this research and he showed that yeah 45 uh, um, percent of, uh, of of students are experiencing this uh, 94 percent of students are overwhelmed and stressed by everything that they have to do and there are a few reasons for it and there's you know there, there are a lot of studies showing similar troubling results um, a, a major reason for the increase in depression is um, our over-reliance on technology. Um, <clears throat> we're spending way too much time on social media and not enough time uh, interacting face-to-face. And I'm not talking about the social isolation and the distancing that's required of us uh, during COVID-19. I'm talking uh, in general. We just don't spend enough time uh, with people in real Relationships. So there are two important elements um, when it comes to in reaping the fruits of uh, relationships, and there are many fruits, uh, psychological fruits, obviously, of uh, of relationships. The one thing we need to think about is real over virtual. Real relationships yield much more benefit than uh, than, than virtual ones. Uh, but there is a second element, which is probably more important, and it's certainly important when real relationships are not an option, given uh, social distancing. Um, and that is the distinction between superficial and deep relationship. You know, it's very different if I have a, a conversation um, with my friend uh on, uh, on WhatsApp and we text one another, we send, uh, you know, nice emojis to one another versus being on the phone and having a, a heart-to-heart uh, one-hour-long conversation. Obviously, the first one we don't benefit much from. The second one we benefit a great deal from. So ideally, when possible, make the relationships real rather than virtual. And uh, whether they're real or virtual, make them deep rather than superficial. That fascinates me because haven't I heard you talk about countries like Colombia and your home nation, Israel, that seem to be way higher on the GHP, the growth happiness uh, product. Is that why? Um, yeah, so, you know, it's fascinating research on the, the happiness index and uh, the, the, the national rankings. And yeah, countries that are happiest in the world are countries like Israel, Colombia, Denmark, um, Norway, uh, Australia, Costa Rica. Why these countries and not US, wealthiest country in the world, or uh, or uh, Germany, you know, wealthiest country in, in, in Europe, uh, or, uh, or Singapore, you know, the Asian miracle. Why not these countries? And, um, and especially why countries like Israel and Colombia with their fair share of challenges um, and the answer, well, there are two levels to the answer. The first level is um, poverty, obviously, is uh, is a hindrance, a real hindrance to, to happiness. So the very poor countries, you know, the 
communist or ex-communist countries are, you know, are, are the least happy countries in the world. So basic needs are essential. You know, Maslow was right. Um, but beyond basic needs, once the basic needs of a country are met, you know, food, shelter, basic, secu- basic security, then what matters most is not uh, additional money, is not a higher GDP or GNP. Uh, what matters is uh, one thing, relationships, social support. Do you feel that, you, that, that there are people in your life whom you can trust, whom you can rely on? whom you can spend uh, time with. So you look at countries like uh, Israel, family is very important there. Friendships are are, are extremely important. You know, I remember um, a, a, a business partner of mine came to visit me in, in Israel. We were doing some uh, filming and he would come uh, uh, in the middle of the week. Sometimes he would stay for the weekend and he came a few times. And, and then finally he said to me, Tal, you know, I can't figure uh, you Israelis out. You're always partying. And uh, I must say, it didn't make sense to me when he said, because, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not a party animal. He said, well, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, on Thursday, we went to this guy. On Friday, we went to your parents for dinner. And uh, Saturday, he went out again, you know, and <clears throat> every day. And, and I said, yeah, that's right, because we interact with our friends and our families all the time. Um, so there's a real emphasis on that. Colombia, same thing, you know, very strong, uh, intimate relationships. Um, Denmark, among the happiest countries in the world, you know that in Denmark, 93% of the population are members of social clubs. So it could be members of their um, church or yacht club or golf or mahjong, it doesn't matter. But they're active members of social clubs. And these interactions, you know, forming those um, trusting relationships, that's that's the secret sauce. Not so secret. <laughs> it's interesting. I want to pull up a point that you just mentioned but there in terms of uh, you know, the US being the wealthiest country in the world. But yet I mean, as you mentioned, forty five percent of college students depression over the last year. It takes me sort of back when you say that to um, Daniel Kahneman's research where didn't he prove that the absence of money is highly correlated with major unhappiness? But over about seventy two thousand dollars it just completely diminishes. Is that sort of linked to your point? Very much so. As I said, basic needs are important. You know, happiness is not a substitute for basic needs. Uh, you know, talking about happiness, uh, spreading happiness, that's no substitute for, you know, the importance of uh, as much as possible eradicating poverty. You know, first and foremost, get, let's get the basics. Mm. After that, after that, Money really doesn't make a difference. You know, you you look at, uh, there are so many very wealthy, very successful uh, people in the world who are absolutely miserable. And then there are many people who are, who have very little and yet celebrate life constantly. It's, it's not about, beyond basic needs, it's not about the money. Amazing, amazing. That's such an interesting point. I want to pick up on another thing which I've heard you talk about. And this is this idea of um, self-forgiveness and compassion. So for me, I would say that I am pretty high in conscientiousness. You know, I'm very organized. I take responsibility for a lot of things, right? Which has been uh, a positive in terms of, I suppose, my outputs. But it's also been a detriment in regards to, say, a relationship comes to an end. Then I take responsibility for the full thing. And then... 
you know, my thought patterns, they drift into this. Oh, I could have done this or I could have done this. So I want to know, why is it so difficult for us to forgive ourselves? You know, um, when the Dalai Lama first came to the, uh, to the West, the thing that um, shocked him most was that uh, Westerners struggled with self-compassion that Westerners struggled with self-esteem issues, um, which we do. You know, I wrote my dissertation on self-esteem. Why did I write it on self-esteem? Why did I devote uh, six years to doing research on self-esteem? Not because I was thriving and my self-esteem was so high and I just wanted to share it with the world because I was struggling. And uh, I was struggling against the... Uh, against my better judgment, because I thought I should have really high self-esteem. You know, I was, uh, I was at Harvard, I was a top athlete, uh, I, had, uh, I had, you know, good supportive relationships in my life. I, I ticked all the boxes. I should really have had high self, and I didn't. And, um, and I wasn't the only one, I realized. Once I started researching it, I saw, you know, this was really a pandemic of, uh, of low self-esteem, or as the Dalai Lama put it, uh, lack of self-compassion. And um, when he was asked about, you know, he, 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 you know, he was taken aback by it, and, and he, he asked questions, and he said, you know, I think I understand at least partially why. And he said, the word compassion in uh, Tibetan is tsewe. Tsewe. And in Tibetan, the word tsewe means self-compassion and compassion for others. So inherent in that word is I care about myself and I care about others. And whereas in English, when you ask, okay, so what is compassion? The automatic response would be, oh, it's the caring for other people. It's feeling for other people, right? It's, 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 we need to add self before compassion for it to also include the self. It's not embedded in the word as it is in uh, Tibetan. So in Tibetan, from a very young, you know, from a very young age, they are raised with the understanding that self and others are interconnected, that self-compassion is as obvious as other compassion. You know, it's not just about be nice to others. Be nice to yourself. More than that, it's first be nice to yourself. And by extension, expand outward and be nice to others. Um, in the West, we have an issue with that. We have an issue with it um, because we equate focusing on the self, self-compassion, um, worrying about, uh, having concern for the self as selfish. <laughs> Even you know, in my field, happiness studies, when people say, oh, pursuing happiness, that's selfish. Now you go to the dictionary or even better, the thesaurus, and you, looked, you look for synonyms for selfish. You know what you would find? I'll tell you. You'll find evil, self-interest, bad, inconsiderate. Um, now, immoral. These are the things, these are the words, these are the synonyms to selfish. Now, who wants to be evil, inconsiderate, immoral, bad? We don't wanna be that. We wanna be nice. Now, you go to the other side and you look at selfless. What are the words, the synonyms for selfless? Altruistic, good, um, moral, nice, generous. I, I want, I'll have some of that, right? Not some of the, of the other one. 
And then we create in our mind subconsciously from a very young age a distinction. If I want to be a moral person, I have to stop thinking about myself. Self-compassion, out. Selflessness, in other words, the negation of the self. Altruism literally means the negation of the self. That's good. Selfishness, bad. Whereas, uh, in, uh, again, in the East, they don't make this, this distinction. So what do we do? Uh, I, I, we need to marry the two. We need to bring the, the best of selfishness and the best of selflessness together. And to my mind, they, they, they meet where selffulness exists. So it's not selfish, it's not selfless, it's selfful. It's a person who first has self-compassion, con- concerned about their own well-being, and by extension then moves, uh, moves outwards. Um, and this is, first of all, a cognitive shift that we need to understand why the, um, the schism is so embedded uh, in us between self-love and other love. Um, and after we make this cognitive shift, um, then we can start taking action towards that, such as writing about it. You know, um, um, so there's a wonderful work by uh, Christ, Christ, uh, Kristin Neff. N-E-double-F, on self-compassion and how important that is. There's great work by Brene Brown on vulnerability and uh, embracing the self, the whole self, um, reminding ourselves that, you know, we are part of that um, web and we're no less important than, than other people. And I'd go even a step further and say, if we want to be, um, if we want to take care of other people, we need to first take care of ourselves. I think that's so powerful. One of the, uh, perhaps even a, you know, a mental idea which I come up with where, you know, whenever I'm sort of struggling with this, it's all my fault type of issue, was I sort of imagine myself in a relay race, but all the runners are myself. So, you know, so every 100 metres I'm running round. But the runners behind me, uh, say the person that I was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. So I sort of come up with this idea, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, that whenever I'm beating myself up for, say, something I did in the past, I would imagine that the runner from a year ago is running to pass me the baton. And maybe I'm behind the guy to my right. But I'm not going to shout at the person that I was a year ago because I guess I did the best that I knew at that point. Do you think that that's a good sort of image? I think it's uh, absolutely <clears throat> uh, helpful image. You know, Alan Langer, who's one of my mentors, is um, um, has the following sentence, which is very reassuring, which he says, we always make the best decision given where we are. We always make the best decision given w- where we are because we never wake up in the morning and say, okay, today's bad decision day. I'm going to make as many mistakes as I can. Uh, which, by the way, wouldn't be a terrible idea once in a while to um, to, to become more, uh, you know, as long as we don't harm uh, uh, ourselves or others, um, but to make mistakes because we'll, we'll learn from them. But we don't wake up to saying that. We say, I want to make the best decision possible. And, and we have at our disposal um, only certain information. You know, if, uh, if, if we could read the future, then, you know, things would be different, but we can't. What do you think about the Stoic philosophy? 
Um, so, you know, the, the, the Stoics, uh, you know, whether Marcus Aurelius or, or, or Seneca were the creators of what we know today as cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, you know, they were um, very smart and, um, and had very, very powerful uh, ideas. Now, do I think that they, they, that they capture the whole truth and, and basically we should read the meditations by Marcus Aurelius and then um, we'll have everything figured out? No, I don't think so. However, I think it's a very important part of the, uh, of the, the, the well-being equation. Because this is interesting because when I put on Instagram that uh, you were coming on, one of the questions that we had was, would you rather be sort of stoic by nature? And I think that that question almost applied, you know, um, maybe just a bit flatline sort of thing. Your emotions don't go up and down too much. Or would you rather oscillate with, you know, the highs and the lows? Yeah, so, you know... um... I don't think it's it's always up to us whether we uh, we experience the, the the roller coaster or the or the flat ride. A lot, a lot of it depends on on life, and I think it's healthier to um, to accept the fact that um, we are uh, sometimes going to experience a, a roller coaster. You know, it's um, I think the main difference. So I've been, I've been in this business for, uh, you know, for, for 30 years or so. And um, people ask me, so, so what have you learned over the past 30 years? Or what, if the, what is the big difference between, you know, me and the person who's running behind me, you know, 30 years? Um, and I think the main difference is not that I don't experience uh, strong emotions today, whether pleasurable emotions or painful emotions. I think I experienced them uh, as much as I did when, when I was... Uh, uh, you know, 20. The difference is that today I'm uh, more embracing of, uh, of whatever comes my way. Meaning when there is, uh, when there is sorrow, uh, I experience the sorrow, I would sh- shed a tear, but not worry about it too much. Um, when I worry, I don't worry about worrying, meaning I just worry. Um, when uh, when I'm sad, I'm sad. When I'm anxious, I'm I'm anxious. I'm not anxious about being anxious. Whereas in the past, I used to be more concerned about about these these emotions. Um, so in that respect, I do accept them more stoically. However, I still have these emotions, and and they don't stay away. But they they don't. Um, I'm not exempt from them, but they don't overstay their welcome. So they come and and they go. It's interesting that you say that because I heard um, Dr. Michael Gervais, he said that his personal definition of the meaning of life, and, and I just want to put a preface that I know we're getting some pretty you know, esoteric weeds here, but he said that his personal definition of the meaning of life was to feel the depths of each individual emotion without ever getting lost in them. Mm, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Uh, I would add that, you know, some, sometimes uh, we do get lost in the emotion, and that's also human, and that's also uh, natural. So we're uh, learning to, to even accept when, when that happens. Um, you know, in, in Buddhism, there is, um, 
there is a, a talk, and today more and more so in, in research, there is talk of two levels of pain or two levels of suffering. Um, the first level is the natural one that we experience. You know, if you know we lose someone, obviously we experience pain. If we want something and don't get it, we obviously experience pain. So uh, if we see people struggling or suffering, we obviously experience pain. These are these are natural, inevitable. The second level of suffering or the second level of pain comes when we reject the first level. So if I would say to myself, for instance, uh, Tal, you shouldn't experience uh, uh, sadness, you're a happiness expert, and I reject the sadness, I will develop a second level of pain. Um, if I reject the painful emotion that comes after uh, a loss, if I reject it, that pain in the long term will only increase second level of pain. So the first level is inevitable. Second level, we have a choice about and the choice is, do we accept and embrace emotions as they come? Or do we, do we fight them? Do we surrender or do we reject? So this is fascinating to me. So I want to pick up on a couple of points here. So I suppose what you're saying there would be like, if I'm feeling sad and I tell myself not to feel sad, that would almost be like me saying, don't picture the moon, right? Like, and, and the moon is just going to pop into your mind. So I want to know, for this, what would you say, because we've had a couple of different strategies for this on the show. We've had, um, you know, someone like I interviewed, uh, Professor uh, Mark Brackett uh, from uh, Yale, who, you know, he wrote a book called Permission to Feel. He's got this ruler methodology, and I think his sort of approach is to, um, you know, just feel your way through the emotion, you label it. And, and uh, you know, I think that's a very credible uh, approach. And then I've heard people come on the show and sort of mention the CBT, me- you know, the Cognitive Behavioral um, Therapy Method, which you uh, talked about. Example. So, like, an example of that would be if I'm feeling a negative thought, to use that as a habit loop trigger to, say, think of something like something that I'm grateful for. Which of those two approaches would you sort of lean towards? Yeah, uh, both. I mean, the way the, the way I see it is we need to engage in active acceptance. Active acceptance, in short, is accepting any emotion, whatever emotion it, it is, and then choosing the most appropriate course of action. Active acceptance. Um, now, the most appropriate course of action may be to cry, to continue crying. Uh, the most appropriate course of action may be... Uh, to wait for a day and then to go out with friends and spend time with them. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of uh, um, active acceptance in, in, uh, in practice. So for instance, uh, in the workplace, um, let's say I'm, uh, um, I want to submit a proposal, but I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous uh, about it then um, one way to go about it is to say, I shouldn't be nervous, don't be nervous, you're an experienced manager or employee, you know, why are you nervous? That's one way of doing it. And then, you know, as the example you gave, don't think of a moon, you'll think of a moon. Don't be nervous, you'll even be more nervous. Another way is to say, okay, I'm, uh, I, I feel anxiety, I'm, I'm afraid, means that I'm human because human beings experience anxiety, all human beings. 
Um, and then say, and I'm going to go ahead with that fear, with that anxiety, and submit the proposal anyway. This is active acceptance, accepting the emotion and going ahead anyway. Courage is not about not having fear. Courage is about having fear and going ahead anyway. Um, another example, um, let's say I feel uh, envy towards my best friend. And you know, envy, natural human emotion. We all experience it at times. Um, one way to deal with it is you say, I shouldn't feel envious, or you know, this could also be on the subconscious level to reject envy because a person who is envious, we learn, is uh, an immoral person. And then we reject it. And when we reject it, we're more likely to act on it. Or alternatively, we can say, okay, so I'm envious, I'm human. I don't like uh, experiencing the envy, but I'm human and it's natural. Now, how can I be the best friend possible? So accept the envy and then behave in a generous and benevolent way. Accepting the, there's a paradox. There's always a paradox when it comes to painful emotions. When we reject them, they intensify. They simply grow stronger. It's when we accept and embrace them that they don't overstay their welcome and they don't um, grow to the point where they control us. We have control over our behavior. What is your permission to be human concept? So the permission to be human concept is um, around accepting and embracing uh, our emotion. I first thought about that when um, when uh, I taught my first class on, uh, on, on positive psychology. And uh, the, the first year when, when I taught it, I had um, eight students. Two of them dropped out, <laughs> left me uh, with a broken ego. Um, and I remember I had lunch one day when I was teaching it and, and a student who, who wasn't in my class came uh, came over and says, tell me, I join you. And I said, sure. And he comes over and uh, he sits uh, next to me and then he said, Tal, I hear you're teaching a class on happiness. And I said, yeah, positive psychology. He said, you know, my roommates are in your class. So there were two of the six. Um, and then uh, he said to me, but you know, Tal, now that you're teaching this class, you've got to watch out. And I said, what? And he said, Tal, you've got to be careful. And, and I said, why? And uh, he said, because if I see you unhappy, I'll tell my roommates. And, uh, and I actually used that in class the following day when I addressed my, my students. I said to them, you know, the last thing in the world that I want you to think is that I'm always happy or that uh, you, by the end of the, the year, will experience a constant high. There are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions, such as sadness, or anger, or envy, or, uh, or anxiety, frustration, two kinds of people, psychopaths and dead people. So if you experience painful emotions, it's actually a good sign. It means you're not a psychopath and you're alive. Uh, the problem in today's culture is that we do not give ourselves the permission to be human. We do not give ourselves the permission to experience the full range of human emotions. Why? Um, partially because of uh, the way we've been uh, uh, trained, brought up, partially because of social media. Because what we see on social media is the following. We see that everyone, everyone is having an amazing time always. 
you know, everyone has the, you know, perfect job, perfect uh, school life, perfect uh, relationship, everyone except for me. For me, yeah. And, um, and, and, and I see this and I don't want to be the only one left out. So I contribute with my own uh, posts and my own, uh, you know, perfect Photoshop pictures. And um, I contribute to this great deception, which leads to a great depression because we do not give ourselves the permission to be human. How do we give ourselves the permission to be human? By talking about our difficulties and hardships, by opening up uh, uh, through writing, uh, by shedding a tear. And again, we don't need to do it publicly. We can do it by ourselves or we're with our BFF or people we trust. That's why relationships, uh, intimate relationships are so important. I love that idea. That is one of my favorite concepts from your work, I think. I think this would be a good point to sort of touch on to the happiness stuff. So when I was thinking about happiness, um, I think it's one of those things where there doesn't seem to be, from what I've seen, I've heard Neil Parisha, Sean Aker, these guys sort of have sort of similar, but sort of similar definitions. But from what I've heard, it doesn't seem to be a sort of unified one. Like I think Sean says... Something like it's the um, the joy we feel while striving towards our goals. So I'd love to know, what would your personal definition of happiness be? Yeah, so um, my definition has evolved uh, over, over the years. So, you know, when I wrote Happier, which was uh, my first book on happiness, uh, I defined it as uh, meaning and pleasure. So the combination of, uh, of the two. The um, today my definition has uh, has expanded, and again, not not because I think it's more right or because it's the definition, but because I think this is the definition that works, that is uh, operational, meaning that is helpful um, for people. So the definition comprises five elements. Um, the first element is spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being uh, can certainly be about religion, but it doesn't have to be. It's about uh, experiencing a sense of meaning and purpose. In, uh, in what we're doing. It's about being connected uh, to, to the present, being mindful. So that's spiritual well-being. And there is physical well-being, which is about exercise, nutrition. Uh, it's about um, uh, rest, recovery. Then there is intellectual well-being. Intellectual well-being is about learning. Do you know that um, research came out recently showing that people who are curious, who, who learn, who spend time uh, expanding their horizon, delving deeply into into material. They're uh, not just happier, they actually live longer. So curiosity, you know, we're told kills the cat. Uh, it actually does the opposite. It helps us live longer. Um, then there is um, relational well-being, number one predictor of happiness, quality time you spend with people you care about and who care about you. Uh, relational well-being is also about our relationship with ourself. Remember, it's self, compassion for self, compassion for others. And finally, it's emotional well-being. And that is about uh, cultivating pleasurable emotions like gratitude, joy. Uh, as well as dealing with painful emotions like anxiety, like envy, like sadness. Uh, so we have spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. These are the five elements. They also spell SPIRE. It's an acronym. Complete coincidence, coincidence there. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> yeah, it, 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 
It's an APT acronym. An APT acronym. Because SPIRE is also the highest point of a building. And the way um, Aristotle talked about happiness, he said it's the highest end, the end toward which all other ends lead. Um, so SPIRE is also from ASPIRE or INSPIRE. It's also breath. It gives, uh, it, it provides us breath, the, um, the very thing we need uh, to live. Um, so spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. Now, people say, well, you know, this is a complicated um, uh, definition for happiness, you know. I'm sorry I asked uh, kind of thing, you know. Isn't there a, a shorter definition? And, and the answer is yes. You know, I can define happiness as whole person, well-being. Whole person meaning your spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional entity. Um, but the reason why it is important to break down happiness into this constituents is the following. And this is research that um, is so important and yet so few people are, are aware of it. So Iris uh, Moss, M-A-U-S, did this research showing that people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, um, I want to be happy or happiness is an important value for me. Um, these people actually tend to be less happy. In other words, um, setting happiness on a pedestal as a, as, a, as a high value, as a top value, saying that it's important for me to be happy actually takes away, detracts from my overall happiness levels. And that's problematic. Why? Because on the one hand, we know that doing so doesn't help happiness. But on the other hand, we know how important happiness is. You know, you increase levels of happiness. It doesn't just feel good to, to, to feel good. You're also more creative, you're more productive, your relationships will be better, uh, you'll be more successful overall, you'll be healthier. You know, there are all these reasons why we should want to be happier. So on the one hand, we know all these reasons why happiness is good, but on the other hand, we are told, but you shouldn't really pursue happiness, not, not, not good, because if you do, you'll be less happy. So do we kid ourselves? Do we, you know, is self-deception the foundation of the pursuit of happiness? No. What we need to do in order to overcome this paradox that on the one hand we know happiness is important, but on the other hand, pursuing happiness or valuing happiness as important hurts us. The way to overcome this uh, issue is to pursue happiness indirectly. That's the key. Now think of the following metaphor. Um, sunlight. So right now I'm looking outside and the, the, the sun is shining. Now if I look to the sun, it will actually hurt me to, uh, to look directly at the sun. So what can I do? I can take the sun and uh, break it down through a prism, for example. And I break it down and, uh, and then I'm looking at the rainbow. And then I can enjoy each of the colors, tremendously enjoy, or look at it indirectly as I am now because it's, it's on the tree outside. I can enjoy it indirectly not directly. Same with happiness. If I wake up and say, I want to pursue happiness or happiness is important for me, not going to help me. Actually, it's going to hurt me. But if I say, okay, let me break down happiness. Let me break, break it down to spiritual well-being, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. These are the equivalent of the colors of the rainbow. And I break happiness down into these constituents and pursue those, then I increase my levels of happiness. In other words, if I wake up in the morning and say to myself, I want to do something that is more meaningful in life, 
spiritual well-being, or I'm going to meditate more, be more mindful, increase levels of spirituality, or exercise on a regular basis, or learn new things, indulge my curiosity, intellectual well-being, or spend more time with people I care about and who care about me, relational well-being, or give myself the permission to be human and keep a gratitude journal, emotional well-being, then I'm resolving the paradox, then I'm actually increasing levels of happiness. That's why just a simple definition of happiness is unfortunately uh, not sufficient. It's pithy, it's elegant, but not sufficient. We need to break it down into its uh, into its elements, just as we would break sunlight. Fascinating. And when you mentioned that, I remember a book in which I read, it was by uh, a, a behavioral economist, economist from... Um, actually from the UK. His name is John Kane. He wrote a book called Obliquity. And his premise of the book is that our goals are best achieved indirectly. And he gives, you know, one of the examples I could give would be if you're starting a business, don't try to, don't chase money, right? Mm. Or just offer value. So I guess this links into, you know, your concept. So I'd love to just delve into these indirect means um gratitude for example is one which i've heard repeatedly over and over again it's probably such a timeless principle right um so when i was researching you i'd I'd, I'd love for for you to fact check uh this but i read that for the last 21 years you've kept the gratitude journal so 19th of september 1999 to be first what was my first gratitude entry Wow, that's amazing. So, so what what is your sort of gratitude practice? Yeah, um, so I actually have a, have a few, and it has evolved over the years. So I started in um, in 1999 after uh, watching an Oprah episode where she talks talked about keeping a gratitude journal, uh, and I've been doing it uh, ever since daily. Um, it was in 2003 that the first uh, uh, big study on gratitude came out. That was by uh, Robert Emmons and Mike McAuliffe, uh, where they showed the um, the benefits that I must say even surprised me. I knew there were benefits. That's why I kept on doing it. Uh, but it was quite remarkable. So they, they showed happiness levels go up, optimis- optimism levels go up that, you know, that I felt. But they also showed that we become more generous and friendly and kind. When we do it, they also showed that uh, we become more successful. They also showed that we become physically healthier. In other words, our immune system gets uh, stronger as a result of it, which, which I think is remarkable. Um, so I've been keeping a gratitude journal. In addition, as a family, once a week, we go around the table and, uh, and, and each of us shares uh, at least one thing. Usually it's more than one thing. Uh, that, the, the, that we share, that, that we're grateful for. And it's everything from, you know, I, I had a, a play date with a friend, you know, or, or we went to the, uh, um, you know, on the, on the Ferris wheel, whatever it is that, that, you know, the kids did and we say it. And, you know, we obviously, my wife and I always end it and we're grateful that we're together and that we love you. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful ritual as a, as a family. Um, so that's one. Uh, that, that's a second one. Another one, uh, gratitude letters. You know, I, I always think about, you know, gratitude letters are, it was found by, this is a research by Marty Seligman and Christopher Peterson, that they are the most powerful single intervention out there. 
writing a gratitude letter. Um, and a gratitude letter is much more than just a thank you note. Uh, it's about really thinking about that person and what that person means to you and how they've contributed to your life, writing it and then ideally reading it to them. And the impact of that of that exercise is just beyond belief. I mean, what it does to the individual writing it, to the individual receiving it, and to the relationship is uh, is, is very powerful. So that that's another practice, and and, and a fourth practice. And this was um, uh, this is research done by one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Dina Neer. and what she showed was that um, it's not just thinking about the past that benefits us. It's also thinking about the future, meaning she had her the participants in her study every morning write three things that they're looking forward to during the day, things that haven't happened. So I'm looking forward to, you know, lunch with a friend or I'm looking forward to uh, you know meeting a client or I'm looking forward to the end of the day. It doesn't matter. Any three things. Um, and people who write it down, interestingly, she found they were not happier. They were not more optimistic, but they were less pessimistic they were less anxious and they were more resilient. Mm. Um, and um, again, I, I, I didn't, uh, I wouldn't have guessed that this would, would be the result. But in retrospect, I, I, I can understand why. Because remember, the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. Without hope yeah. Now, as soon as I write, I'm looking forward to Emil. A conversation, a something that immediately um, plants hope in my in my being, in my day. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I hope that I get to this, and then I become less pessimistic, less sad, more resilient in the face of difficulties. I love it, and I suppose even from a, a neurochemical point of view, being grateful is sort of the serotonin and the want in what we have. <laughs> And then the dopamine response would be sort of looking forward to what we have going on that day, right? Um, yes. I wonder, could you give us one more indirect uh, exercise that we could take away with us? Sure. So um, I, I spoke about this briefly, but um, I talked about uh, journaling. So there's research by... Uh, well, there's research going back to 1935 by Karen Horney, who was a student of Freud. And uh, I call her the grandmother of positive psychology wow. because she broke, broke away from Freud saying uh, that uh, we shouldn't just focus on the dark side. We should always focus on we should always focus on the light as well. You know, uh, a, a very, very different approach to Freud. She didn't negate Freud. She said, you know, focusing on neuroses and, and difficulties is, is, of course, important, not only. So she has a book uh, from, from the 1930s called Self-Analysis. And in it, she says, look, ideally, if you can go to a therapist, you know, go to a she was a psychoanalyst herself uh, um, and you'll benefit a great deal. And she's right. We do benefit from speaking to to to, to therapists. Um, however, she said, if you can't, for whatever reason, financial, time, uh, fear, whatever it is, and you don't go, um, engage in self-analysis, you know, keep a journal. And, um, and what she has found was the, uh, and, and what subsequent research has shown is that, um, that there is a great deal of benefit 
to just sitting down and writing, writing without thinking about content, writing without thinking about grammar, writing without thinking that anyone would see it because ideally no one will. Um, and, and just sharing, opening up, expressing. Fast forward to 1997, Jamie Pennybaker published a seminal book called Opening Up. Uh, he's a professor at uh, University of Texas, uh, showing the impact of writing about painful emotions and how it uh, reduces anxiety, how it, uh, it improves uh, physical health, how it helps us grow from um, from hardship. Uh, his students, like Laura King, showed that even if we keep a journal writing about our best experiences, that also has both physical and psychological benefits. So journaling, you know, it's inexpensive, it's accessible, um, and uh, and can lead to real meaningful and deep uh, change in, in our lives. For example, you know, Jamie Pennybaker showed that 80 minutes of journaling, that is 20 minutes on four consecutive days, um, reduces our levels of anxiety, uh, which is discernible even a year after we do it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I, I can imagine that that would be really cathartic as well, right? I mean, you just, yeah. you know, just writing everything down. <laughs> just right. Just right. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to find the, um, the protocol that he talks about. And he says, you know, write about uh, your uh, traumatic experience or, or a difficult experience, something ideally that you haven't spoken about before. But even if you did, that's fine. And then on the second day, you write either about the same thing or the next or, or, or a different thing. And so for four days. Again, the impact is just remarkable. Amazing, amazing. I've just got one more question left before we talk about you and where our audience can connect with you. And that was something which absolutely fascinated me when I was delving into you preparing for this. And I'm, there's obviously that famous study about nuns, right? Where, you know, they found that the optimistic nuns they lived on average was eight, nine, ten years later. And that's accurate because I suppose the, a lot of the variables are controlled. So, but but I heard you say, and and I couldn't let you go without asking you this. But I heard you say that there's actually two different types of optimism. Now, ever since I've heard that, it's been playing around in my head, and I want to know how you know what are the two types, and how can I veer towards the the helpful one. Yeah. You know, there's realistic and unrealistic optimism. Waking up in the morning and saying to my, oh, uh, everything's amazing. Everything is going to be great. Um, everything is always uh, positive and great. You know, that, that, that's, that's unhelpful. Um, in fact, in fact, there is actually, you know, there's probably the most common and popular um, intervention in, uh, in, in the self-help movement is positive self-talk. What is positive self-talk? You stand in front of the mirror and you say to yourself, I'm great, I'm terrific, I'm amazing. Well, there's actually research on that showing that in many cases, doing it actually makes you um, um, less confident, reduces your self-esteem, makes you less happy. Wow. Why? Because let's say I'm feeling down. Let's say I have low self-esteem and I stand in front of the mirror and say, Hi, gorgeous, you have very high self-esteem. Not only is it not going to help because it's going to hurt because in addition to the fact that I feel badly about myself, now I also see myself as a hypocrite and a liar because I'm not really, I don't really believe myself. 
the distance between my positive self-talk and my reality is too far. Um, and then it's unhelpful. Realistic optimism is optimism that stretches me and yet is, is, is possible. So it stretches and yet it's possible. You know, if I say to myself, you know, now the, the, the Michael Jordan uh, uh, film just uh, came out in, in, in the US, uh, around the world. And, uh, you know, if I say to myself every day in front of the mirror, I'm going to become the next Michael Jordan. You know, unrealistic. You know, I'm, I'm 5'7", I'm almost 50. Probably not going to happen in my lifetime. You never know, uh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I do know. That's the thing. <laughs> um, however, if I say to myself, you know, I'm really passionate about basketball and I'm going to improve. Now, that's realistic because if I go out and I play basketball every day, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to improve a great deal even. So, yes, being optimistic is important. Uh, at the same time, it's also about being realistic. So it's a uh, connected, uh, attached optimism rather than uh, disconnected and detached. I heard a study before said that uh, people that visualized breezing towards their goals uh, were less effective than people that visualize them heading towards their goals but overcoming obstacles exactly so. and, and and that's very much connected to it because when you visualize uh, how you get there then that makes it uh, more, more likely to happen it makes it more real and therefore realistic um, and it goes back to the work of uh, um, of uh, Rick Snyder the late Rick Snyder who was a, a great positive psychologist and his research is on hope and he talks about hope and he says hope comprises two elements. The first element of hope is willpower and willpower is the belief that you can do something. You know, yes, I can. You know, it's the, the clenched fist. He says, but that's just one half of the equation. The other half of the equation, in addition to willpower, is way power. Way power is how I'm going to do it. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the most beautiful, I must say, very, very moving depiction for me of hope was, uh, um, came from Serena Williams. And uh, she was playing, I think it was uh, after a Wimbledon match or one of the Grand Slams. And she, uh, she just won a match after she was down in this, you know, one set down. And I think it was 4-1 down in the second set. And, and she came back, as, as Serena Williams often does. And um, she was interviewed after, and, and, and the, the, the person interviewing her asked, how? How do you do it? You know, what's, what's your secret sauce? And, uh, and she said, you know, when I go to a game, I always have a plan A, always. And then I have a plan B in case plan A doesn't work. And then I have a plan, plan C. I also have a plan B <laughs> and a plan E. Um, and, and I thought, this is amazing. So obviously she has a great deal of willpower, you know, Serena Williams, you know, arguably the greatest athlete of all time. Um, but it's not just willpower. It's also way power. This is what I'm going to do if this doesn't work. And if this doesn't, this is what I'm going to do. And that is how she generates um, grounded optimism rather than detached optimism. Phenomenal, phenomenal. I love this so much. At the end of every interview, I always ask our guests, I always say, from your field, what would be one thing that you would love everybody listening to know about positive psychology? 
Um, positive psychology is no rocket science. A lot of the things that I talked about are uh, common sense. However, as the French philosopher Voltaire said once, common sense is not so common, especially when it comes to applications. So I would like to urge uh, you know, the viewers, the listeners, to uh, make common sense more common in their lives, meaning to apply these, uh, these ideas, to spend more time with, uh, with their loved ones, to express gratitude on a regular basis, to maybe start a meditation practice, to, um, uh, to maybe start a, a, a keep a journal, or at least try uh, to experiment with uh, these ideas, make common sense more common in their lives. I love it. I love it. What books have impacted your life, Dal? Yeah, so there have been, uh, been a few. Um, the book that uh, impacted me, I think most in the psychological realm, is Nathaniel Brandon, yeah. The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Uh, I ended up... I love it. Uh, I love it. I ended up also, you know, as, as I mentioned, writing my dissertation on uh, on his work. Another book that uh, I recommend anyone who's in a long-term relationship or is interested in a long-term relationship, um, the book called Passionate Marriage by David Schnarch literally changed the way I view relationships and the way I experience relationships. Wow. Did you ever meet uh, Brandon, Nathaniel Brandon? Did you ever meet him? You did? Wow. I did meet. I'll, t- I'll tell you the quick story. Okay. So uh, I was, I was, I was in, in England then. I was studying at Cambridge University. And uh, I uh, woke up one Sunday morning. And, uh, and I just started thinking about Aristotle. And I, you know, I, I read Aristotle. I write about Aristotle. And I said, I wish Aristotle was alive. Uh, today because I would go to the uh, Lyceum which is his univer- was his university and I would go and study with him and actually shed a, a, a tear of, uh, of, 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 of sadness you know why wasn't I why isn't he alive uh, today um, and then I suddenly it suddenly dawned me and I said well, wait a minute um, my Aristotle is alive today mm-hmm. Nathaniel Brandon is my Aristotle and I got out of bed Sunday morning and wrote him a long letter. There were no emails then. So I wrote him a long letter uh, asking, uh, asking him really to be his apprentice. Wow. Uh, and uh, cut a long story short, we ended up meeting a while back and he became my teacher. Wow. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I got to ask this. What was maybe one thing you could share that you learned from Brandon? Because he's been, the, the Six Pillars is one of the most amazing books I've ever read. First pillar of self-esteem, self-acceptance. Self-acceptance. Yeah, and that is where, you know, the permission to be human uh, came from. Oh, wow. This has been amazing. I could talk to you all day. Where can our audience connect with you, Tal? Yes, so um, I've uh, recently co-founded the Happiness Studies Academy. So either just Google the Happiness Studies Academy or go to happinessstudies.academy. And um, there's access there to my uh, to my to my online uh, courses, books, and and so on. Everything, all of Tal's books, his website, uh, anything which I can find will be linked below. Anything mentioned in this episode will be linked. You can just swipe up and get it. Tal, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've loved it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for doing the work that you do. Well, guys, that wraps up what was an incredible interview with Tal. 
Speaking to him makes me realize just how much of our own happiness is actually within our control. Things like gratitude, collaboration, giving, and positive relationships have such an enormous ROI. So that concludes this week's episode. And in the meantime, if you want more of this content, please hit the subscribe button, like, rate, review. Follow us on YouTube for the video interviews, as well as our increasingly popular newsletter, Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. So guys, we will see you again on Monday for the next episode. Have a great weekend and stay grateful, friends.